0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Infinity and Beyond, Episode 3. Um, today's a little bit different because I'm actually going to be doing this episode by myself. But regardless, today we have news. In our main segment, I talk about Disney parks attractions that I would love to be feature films. Later we have TV reviews back, and we will be discussing Episodes 1 and 2 of Marvel Studios She-Hulk. Then, we have a brand new Disney theory as usual in our series, Explaining Gods in Disney lore. So come with us as we go where very few have gone before, to infinity and beyond. in news for this week, Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party is finally back in full swing this year at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Along with it has came extremely high demand for the special ticketed event, and new characters for the event's exclusive meet and greets. One of the most highly anticipated out of these being Max Goof from the cult classic A Goofy Movie in full powerline garb. Along with this, the Headless Horseman rides again for the first time since 2019. As I mentioned, tickets are selling fast, so make sure you act quick if you would like to go to this special ticketed event. Since its establishment at the park, the Disney Enchantment Fireworks Spectacular has not been well received by guests. In an attempt to spruce up the nightly show, a new projection scene has been added, including Walt and his brother Roy O. Disney. I'll leave a video of this new version of the show in the show notes. D23 Expo is coming up shortly, and along with it comes much speculation and new developments along with these comes the initiation of several new disney legends for those that do not know a disney legend is a person that is recognized as playing a key role in the history and progress of the disney company this year these people who will be added to the lineup include anthony anderson kristen bell chadwick boseman robert Coltrane, patrick dempsey robert price foster josh Gad, jonathan groff don hahn Doris Hardoon, Dina Menzel, Chris Montan, Ellen Pompeo, and Tracy Ellis Ross. Construction continues on Moana Journey of Water at Epcot, and ride testing is well underway at Tron Light Cycle Run. The gift shop exit of Space Mountain Tomorrowland Lighting and Power Company closed a while ago for refurbishment to accommodate Tron, for which it will also serve as an exit. The shop is said by Disney to reopen to guests November 6, 2022. Due to this, it is rumored that Tron may have an opening date around this time, but more word on that will come at this year's D23 Expo. Speaking of D23, all three days of this event will be live-streamed by Disney on September 9th through the 11th. For those who cannot make it, like me, and would want to watch, can find the live-stream on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch, as well as d23expo.com slash live and d23.com. Wrapping up news for today, Disney's Blizzard Beach Water Park has been closed since January 3rd of this year and is suspected to reopen its doors late October 2022. Thank y'all for listening. Now, on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our main segment for today. Um, For a long time, I have loved the idea of films based around Disney Parks attractions. And there have been some, such as the um, highly acclaimed and profitable Pirates of the Caribbean films, as well as the newer film Jungle Cruise with Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson, and the Haunted Mansion movie, the first one, with Eddie Murphy. Um, That one was something. Um, But I have always wondered why they don't make more of those. The Disney Parks attractions have rich backstories assigned to them that don't really get paid attention to by guests, sadly, because they are hidden away and you have to go look for the details. Um, Some have, and some people have found them, but most people just kind of take the ride at face value and don't see all the little hidden details behind it that make it what it is. And I really would love to see those stories paid more attention to. And the best way to do that, I've found, is through films. And I would really love to see more films based around Disney Parks attractions. So today, I am actually going to go and list off um, some attractions that I think would work very well in film format and tell you why I think I would want them as films. Now, for today's segment we will be focusing primarily on Walt Disney World. Um, I'm not saying that there are not attractions around the world that wouldn't do well in film format. I bet there's a whole lot of them. But I would just like to do things that I have a little bit more experience with personally just so I can make sure that I am giving Correct information and correct views on why I think it would work in a film format. Um, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I am actually doing this whole episode solo, so I really hope you enjoy regardless. But I just thought I'd go ahead and get out of that, get that out of the way, because no one will be joining me today. Um, <clears throat> so the first one on my list, I have Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Now the backstory for this attraction is different depending on what park you go to. In Paris, um at Walt Disney World and Disneyland and overseas, every one of these things has a different backstory. I think the one in Tokyo might have the same backstory as the one in Florida, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Most of them have different backstories to them. And they all center around different things. But the most interesting one to me would either be the one in Disneyland or the one in Walt Disney World. The one on Walt Disney World centers around a town called Tumbleweed, and after there is a great earthquake, the mining operations in Big Thunder Mountain Railroad are shut down indefinitely, and everything just goes dark. People move away and it becomes a ghost mining town until we come along and begin riding the old mine carts once again that somehow are moving on their own without any form of machinery working to push them or pull them. Um, and obviously, there is more to that, more details, um, fi- like finitely in the story. Um, but that is the gist of it. And I would really, really, really love to see um, that as a film, the idea of the Walt Disney World one adapted into a film. Either that or the one in Disneyland, which I won't explain all of these backstories, I'll just give a rough overview, but you'll be able, I'll put links in the description to places that I believe explain the backstories of these attractions better than I can. And if I forget to, which is possible. Um, I'm just going to say right now, you can go to the YouTube channel, Offhand Disney. He has some very, very um, great, 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 great videos on backstories for Disney attractions. So my first one would be Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. I think it would work really great in a film film format because it has, depending on what place you're looking at it from, it really does have great characters. It's a very, very rich storyline. And it just, it feels like it's made to be written in a book or in a film and not just to be seen through the attraction. And not that it, shouldn't, it should be taken out of the attraction at all. I absolutely love the backstories for these Disney's attractions. But my point in saying what I just said is that I I would love if they were paid more attention to. So my first one is Big Thunder Mountain. Um, my second attraction that I think would work very well as a movie is a actual Haunted Mansion film. I know that we got one with Eddie Murphy, but it was not, it it was a movie. Was it the movie that the Haunted Mansion deserves? Not even close. So I would really, really love to see a actual, really good Haunted Mansion film out there. Um, And Guillermo del Toro um, is a I don't know what you would call him, a very, he's kind of a dark director in terms of his his films are usually a little bit more gritty, but he signed on before the pandemic to do a Haunted Mansion film. Um, That has not really been talked about since then. It still is coming, and I would assume we're going to get some word on it at least coming up at this year's D23 Expo in September, but I'm not sure, but I'm extremely excited for that film. And I really hope it comes along soon because I really think The Haunted Mansion deserves a film or a series of films like Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean had a storyline before the films came along, but it was not nearly as rich and nuanced as something like Big Thunder Mountain or Haunted Mansion. It had a storyline, but that storyline was much more hidden and took a lot more analyzing. It was not really kind of right in front of your face. But Haunted Mansion probably has the most intricate storyline out of any Disney attraction um I can personally think of. It um it has like mo numerous characters to deal to play with, including Constance Hatchway, um Master Gracie of uh, the Ghost Host who leads you through the mansion the entire time. Um There's just so much mystery and so much story packed away in there. It's impossible to see on one ride through. Um, The Haunted Mansion is truly a masterpiece in themed entertainment um, ride creation. But it also has way too much story to just kind of be left untouched untouched on that front. So I think out of all of these on my list, it just might be the one that I think deserves to be a movie above all the rest. I just, but I really, really hope we get a actually good haunted mansion movie in the next few years. Um, the next one on my list might actually surprise some people, but Space Mountain is has a storyline separate from you go to space and come back. It is at least from what I understand in Florida. I don't know if the if I'm not sure if the storyline is the same in California Space Mountain. But in Florida's Space Mountain, the premise is that um, each of the different Space Mountains around the globe are a spaceport. Each is like an airport for space. And you are going on a trip, like an airplane trip, when you are on Space Mountain as a roller coaster. You are going to another one of the spaceports. That's also why when you go ahead and you get off of the attraction... You go up that conveyor belt, and it shows you all of the, um, the commercial sort, the advertisement windows for different resorts around the galaxy, or whatever. And that's because you are in an airport, you're in a spaceport. And I'm not sure how they would take that and make it into a film, but I do think it's possible. And I just really think that idea is fascinating. So I would love to see it flushed out more and put into a film or a book or something along those lines. Um, Space Mountain actually might not work as well for a movie as it would for a Disney Plus series. Maybe a bunch of like singular story events that have happened related to the said spaceports, but I really think that story should be flushed out a little bit more, and it really I think could be something really great. Now this next one on my list is one that I have wanted to be a movie probably since I wrote it, because it feels like It is an attraction based on a film even though it's not. It's completely original Um, to an extent. It's almost completely original. But the Tower, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror in Disney's Hollywood Studios is a wonderful attraction and the backstory for the attraction is actually completely um, original. The only thing that's not original to Disney is the Twilight Zone theming. And I personally think that the Twilight Zone theming will be leaving the Tower of Terror very soon because it can't... Disney won't keep paying for the rights to the Twilight Zone for long. And I'll explain why. The Twilight Zone is owned by CBS. CBS is owned by a company called Viacom, and Viacom is owned by a company called Comcast. Comcast is also the company that has NBC and Universal under their umbrella and a bunch of other um, and Viacom has Nickelodeon. Comcast is the big overlord that the money that Disney is paying is truly going to and it's Comcast is Disney's greatest competitor in the entertainment industry as I really just can't see them paying much longer for the rights to Twilight Zone for that attraction and when i say this i do not think the attraction is going away i just think that at some point very soon we'll see it lose its twilight zone theming and just be left with its just its raw story its raw storyline with the ghost story and the hollywood tower hotel and all of that it's not going to go away like it did in california but the twilight zone i believe will be leaving it soon And I am excited for that. I'm ready for that change. I feel like it'll be a much better. It'll it'll not much better. I feel like it will make it a even better attraction, more than more so than it already is, with it being a completely original attraction, no IP attached to it, which in modern day Disney is a really 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 hard thing to get. But I think by popular demand, that's what's happening this time with Tower of Terror. Now a couple. A couple months ago, I'm pretty sure, maybe last year, I can't really remember for sure. But Scarlett Johansson, who um, plays Natasha, Ro- Natasha Romanoff in um, Marvel Studios um, MCU films. She, and, I mean, she does a whole bunch of other things as well, obviously. She's a actress. But um, I, I just thought that's where people would recognize her the most from. She signed on to do a Tower of Terror film with Disney then but that almost fell through when she sued disney for not being paid equally for black widow um at later that whole issue was resolved and as far as we know she has signed back on to do this tower of terror film but i really 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 cannot wait to see it come out in theaters um it's going to be like amazing i cannot tell you how many times i've imagined the trailer for this thing it just it's gonna give me goosebumps, I have no doubt, Um, but I don't think we'll be seeing that for another couple years, same as the Honda Mansion movie. But moving on, the next one on my list is Journey into Imagination. Now this attraction has gone through many different iterations, and the first one is really the only one that people ever really, really liked, especially Disney Parks fans. Because um, the first the first one had the Dreamfinder in it, um, who was, I'm not really for sure how to explain it, he had a big like red beard and was sort of, I mean he was the keeper of imagination I guess, like almost kind of like a wizard, but he couldn't do magic. You all will just have to see a picture, I'll leave a ride POV of the original journey into imagination in the description of this video but i I would love to have seen that attraction because people rave about it. It was a crowd pleaser. It was a hit. Everyone loved it. Um or most people loved it. I shouldn't say everyone. But um back in probably, I cannot remember when it was. I'll have to look up the date, but it closed down um when Michael Eisner was head of the company, and it became Journey into Your Imagination which was probably the least liked out of any iteration of the ride. Um, people it, retaliated. it was not a well-received attraction at all. So only a year, I think, if not a couple months after journey into your journey into your imagination opened, it was replaced with journey into imagination journey into imagination with figment, which was a a watered down, combination of the original two attractions. Now, as long as Figment keeps selling as much merchandise as he does at Epcot, I do not think we're losing this attraction anytime soon. Um, And I think I would love to see them revamp it and bring it back to somewhat of its original glory back in the 80s. Um, Will we ever see that? I'm not sure, but I would I would really, really love to see it happen at some point, as would a lot of other people. But Journey into Imagination is the next one on my list. I think it would work very well in a film format um, with with the Dreamfinder back again. Um, Marvel Studios, not Marvel Studios, Marvel Comics went through um, an era a while ago where they did a series called um, Disney Kingdoms. And Disney Kingdoms was where they did multiple series of comic books. Each was based around a different Disney attraction, Disney Parks attraction. They did one series on the Tiki Room, one series on um, Journey into Imagination, one on Haunted Mansion, and one on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And I really think those would be the blueprint for how to make this into a linear storyline that you could put into a movie. Um, I'm currently actually reading the Journey into Imagination one, and I actually really like it so far. Um, And I think it would, I would love, 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 love to see it in a film format, something along those lines. So I think that would work very well, and believe me, there's a fan base out there that would dish out the money. Um, The next one on my list is, moving on to Animal Kingdom, we have Expedition Everest. Expedition Everest is one of those rides with a, definitely has a rich backstory, but it's very much hidden. You have to go look at the little details in the queue to be able to understand um, what's going on there. It has a very detailed queue. Um, you're in like a small sort of kind of, I don't know if you call it a ski lodge or not. Um, I think you're it's like a travel agency almost at the bottom of the, the Forbidden Mountain, not actually Mount Everest. Um, the Forbidden Mountain is the mountain that you're on in this attraction. Everest is said to be the mountain beyond the Forbidden Mountain. Now, I really think this would work well in a film format for the reason that it's based on it I mean the storyline behind it is truly almost like it was made for a film. It's a travel agency that builds these um, pathways, these tracks for a train to be able to go through the Forbidden Mountain and take people to Everest, but um, the Forbidden Mountain is on sacred land that is controlled by the Yeti, and they have no regard for this and go and awaken the Yeti, and as local legends say, the Yeti comes alive and attempts to wreak havoc on the passengers' of the first expedition beyond the forbidden mountain to everest and that it really it is the format for a film it would work extraordinary um almost as well as the haunted mansion or thunder mountain would but i would love to see an expedition everest film um and my next one on my list is back to epcot for a second but mission space mission space takes um is um, based around a fictional agency called the, I'm pretty sure it's called the ISTC. I cannot remember what it stands for, but I will. Tr- if I remember, I will try to put that in the description of this um, episode. But they are sending you to either orbit around the Earth or to Mars, depending on whether you choose your green or orange mission um, on mission space. They have two different lines because... It can tend to be a very intense attraction. Will I think we'll uh, we ever get a film on this attraction? No, I don't, because I feel like this attraction in the next ten years or so may be on its way out the door. But still, I think if it ever if ever any, if anyone ever thought of it, and it ever regained any um, significant popularity, I think it would be a really great um, thing to make into a film. I think the film actually might end up being better than the attraction. Some people really love the attraction, but I've never personally gotten on it because I can be, at some point, sort of prone to motion sickness. But um, those are the things on my list. I really hope you all enjoyed this segment of the episode. Um, It's something new. I may start be doing some of these things alone sometimes, and I really hope you liked it. Um, Now, on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am very excited because TV reviews are back. And today, we will be discussing episodes one and two of Marvel Studios' She-Hulk, currently airing on Disney+. Plus. This time, though, is a little different today because I will actually be doing this by myself. So, starting off with episode one. In the comics, the way Jennifer Walters becomes She-Hulk is she gets in some sort of accident, and is close to death, and the only person with a similar enough blood type to give her the blood transfusion that she needs to survive is her cousin Bruce Banner, and through that blood transfusion, she ends up becoming a Hulk as well. We saw a similar yet different origin story on this episode, this first episode of She-Hulk, where instead of her being in the hospital and needing a blood transfusion to survive, they get in a car accident resulting in her, Bruce's blood literally spilling into her bloodstream just raw without any medical medical involvement at all, which I thought was interesting. I don't find it as believable or... As good as the origin story that is originally in the comic books, but this is this is the way they did it, so it is what it is. But I I really do like the way they did it before better. I know it would have held back the show in terms of the fact that we would have to de- had to deal with the fact that she was in the hospital and get out of the hospital, and that takes up a big chunk of that episode. But I still found that old origin story better than what we got here. But it's just, it's different, so it is what it is. So, after she hulks out and is discovering all the stuff about her, she ends up being taken by Bruce to his beach house in Mexico that he reveals he actually built with Tony during the blip, which I thought was really sweet. I love any time we can get reference to Tony or Steve or Natasha or any of them in the current phase of marvel and we really have been paying homage to the dead characters that are very much not coming back the actually dead characters that in the mcu currently and i really just love it anytime we can get reference to them because i know it was nearly a decade but it just always feels like we didn't get enough time of that original group together but we saw jen here at hulk's beach house lab sort of thing and there he explains that, um, the, similar to the comics explanation, that something about their bodies were so similar that they're able to synthesize gamma radiation the same way which resulted in her being able to become a Hulk like him yet different. She can keep control of her mind while she is in Hulk form. Which is interesting and much different than Bruce. Bruce had to deal with a complete alter ego when he's in Hulk form. So that is obviously, it's a comedic show. It's not, it's very lighthearted. It is not meant to be a hardcore, what Bruce went through in earlier um, movies of the MCU. And I really was excited for this show. For the reason of how a She-Hulk is portrayed in the comics. And how she is a very funny, fourth wall breaking, <clears throat> comedic relief character in some iterations. And I was excited to see that in the MCU and see how they did it. And I personally think Tatiana Maslani is doing a great job portraying that. And I've heard from She-Hulk fans on other podcasts I listen to and other places who th- agree with that fact as well. So, she, it's explained that they have a very similar blood type that allows them to synthesize gamma radiation the same way. And she is kind of taken aback by the fact that she is a Hulk. But not really for long. I thought it was interesting how she was put in that sort of um test chamber or cage or whatever you want to call it, where the blades were coming at her, and I loved that that had the Stark Industries logo on it that was... Always once again, another callback to Tony, which is I always love that when we can get it. And what I was wondering in that scene is what was he using that for before Jen got there? Like what was was he putting himself? I don't understand that. That was that was kind of weird. because what happens if you aren't able to hulk out and get out of there? before time runs out, you just literally get chopped to bits by these razor blades. So I was wondering what, what was he using that for before Jen came along? That was kind of suspicious to me. But she goes and goes back to LA. And even before that, when they're training or whatever, she is being very smug in how she is dealing with the fact that she's a Hulk. She thinks that Bruce is being completely ridiculous and that she hundred percent will not have to go through what he did. But it's going to be different, but I feel like the show has made it very clear the fact that she was being smug there. Like that she is going to go through hardships, not the same as Bruce's, different, but still in some cases just as difficult. And she's not she's she is a superhero and she's going to have to deal with that at some point and reconcile with that. And that's really hammered through right at the end of this episode when she's about to wrap up her closing argument. In case she's on currently in the courtroom, Jamila Jamail's Tatiana character comes and breaks through the wall attempting to get out of traffic court as it's said on a newscast that is shown in the next episode. And she has to hulk out and deal with it because it's her civil duty as she has those abilities she should use them to be able to help people. Even if it's going to put her in the public spotlight, which it did. It got on national television and it be- was completely out there that she was the She-Hulk. And she does not like that by any means, but she's going to have to learn to deal with it because it is her life going forward. Um, And Jimmy LaGemail's Tatiana, like, oh my gosh. I am so excited to see her in this show and see how she does in her performance as Tatiana. I just recently watched all four seasons of The Good Place where she portrayed um, Tahani al Jamal. and I absolutely loved that show and that character in the show, and I really cannot wait to see her in something else, especially portraying a villain when she kinda on The Good Place did this sort of pompous goody-two-shoes sort of character, and that's very outside of what she's doing now. I love that we got to see um in the next episode moving on to the second episode we got to see um jen at family dinner and how her family's what her family's reaction was to the fact that she is a hulk now that they have a second hulk in the family and i mean i don't know i thought that their reaction would be much different than it was but i loved the way that they did portray it and i mean it's a bunch of things that you would expect to be completely different in the way that we've had very dramatic things in the MCU so far, um, Phase 4 specifically, like Multiverse of Madness and in The Winter Soldier, and then you come along to this, and everybody's just like, nobody cares that she's a Hulk, pretty much. it's just It's just a thing that happened. They've already dealt with it once. It's not going to be a problem again, and I really love that we're not really having to go and deal with all the melodramatics of other stuff. And in some things, like Multiverse of Madness and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the melodramatics, as I put it, was needed. It was it was just how the story was being told, but this is a very different, more lighthearted performance um, that requires that they're not, to not be hung up on things like that for long. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the family dinner. I thought that was very funny. Um, moving on to later in the episode it is revealed that she is going to be representing Emile Blonsky's Abomination in court. Um, for those of you who don't remember, Emile Emil Blonsky or Abomination is the villain of 2008's Incredible Hulk film. And I I am not by any means a, a fan of that film, but I am, I do like that we are seeing it referenced in MCU proper now. A lot of people have not counted it as canon, and since it came out, we have gotten little to no reference of it, except for, um, little tiny things, and a scene in What If that actually had Betty Brant in it, so I, I like that as we're going forward, we're getting more reference to this, but we're not perseverating on it, and talking about the nitty gritty details. Um, I also thought it was very interesting and I feel like this is a point I should bring up that in the second episode when she went and called Bruce to ask him if he would be comfortable with her representing Emil Blonsky in court defending him um they have that conversation before she asks him when are you going to come visit LA and he says that he's actually kind of busy before hanging up the phone and the camera zooms out to see that he is in the middle of space on a Sakaran spacecraft, similar to what caused the car wreck at the beginning of the first episode, headed off to what we can assume is Sakar again. And I really, I'm excited to see that. Because it, a lot of people are thinking what's happening, the only reason he would be going back to Sakar is that they are doing a variation of a comic storyline called World War Hulk. And in World War Hulk, the idea is that the Illuminati, the group of people that we see, and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness with some different members, are send Hulk away to um, Sakar, banish him there, because he's deemed too a- dangerous for Earth. And he becomes angry with them, but can't get back. So he begins a life on Sakar and um, has meets a woman and... They are about to have a baby before the planet is decimated, and he's the only one who who survives. His wife and his baby die, and he blames it on the Illuminati, and is able to make his way back to Earth, where he goes and attempts to destroy them. Obviously, there is no Illuminati in MCU proper. So this is going to be a different storyline. As we see, he's not being banished. He's just simply going to Sakaar because Sakaar came to retrieve him. So we're going to get a different variation of the storyline if we even get a World War Hulk sort of storyline at all. But if we do, I think that'd be really cool to see because it almost would confirm the fact that we would be getting our normal split personality Hulk back. And I personally enjoy seeing that Hulk better than Smart Hulk on screen. I liked that we saw, going back to the topic of Abomination, that we saw reference to him being in that fight club in Shang-Chi. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, We saw he was with Wong. Wong was taking him to the fight club and back to whatever cell he was in. And in Shang-Chi, we didn't know where he was going back to. We saw a portal that led to this... This isolated like jail cell, but we didn't know where that was until She-Hulk, where we see it is where the DODC has or Department of Damage Control has been keeping Abomination locked away. And one day, a guard comes in and sees that Abomination has escaped, he's not in the cell anymore, and images leak of him at that Fight Club um, footage from Shang-Chi. And I think, I really love that we are seeing that acknowledged in the show, and that Jen Walters is going to have to deal with that. Another full circle moment, kind of, where two what seems like very unrelated things come together and connect in the broader scope of the MCU. So, I feel like on the account of the fact that it's Wong who broke him out, and Wong who has, had been taking him to the flight Club and back, or however many times they had been there, I would assume it had been a couple. We are probably going to see Wong, in my opinion, in our next episode of the show, or the episode after that. But we are going to see him very soon, because obviously he is—Wong had Wong had a lot to do with the fact that Ab- Abomination was going there and back, meaning he would be there to help clear the air on the fact that it's going to be much harder for Jen to support him in court— when he literally just broke out of prison. Um, we know he's gonna be in the show at some point because he was in trailers, but I feel like this is how we get them, which, once it- this is how we get him. Once again, another sort of full circle moment. But, yeah, I really liked these first two episodes. I thought they were really good. I still- the She- this She- the She-Hulk- She-Hulk CGI, cannot talk today, um- it's still not perfect, but as many have said, Tatiana Maslany's performance in the role far outshines the fact that the CGI is a little off. Um, I, the only thing for me is that I know it's probably not bad, but I could not really imagine seeing the She-Hulk CGI on the battlefield in an endgame level scene. And I definitely think it's going to get better as she progresses up in the MCU. And it's a really hard thing to do. So I would just love to see them perfected at some point. But for the purposes of this show, it really is true. Her performance outshines the fact that the CGI is kind of off. And it really does not bother me as much as I thought it would in the show. Um, But yeah, I really, really liked it. I thought the first two episodes were great. And I'm excited to see the remaining ones that come out uh, in the future. I'm pretty sure we we're getting nine episodes of this show. So back to a sort of similar to WandaVision format, which I really loved that we got that bulk of episodes. Um, and I've also heard that this is our last show for this phase of Marvel on Disney+. Plus, So I'm interested to see where this character goes after the show's over, but we'll have to see. I'm also excited for the other cameos that are going to be in the show because I've heard there's going to be quite a few other... Um, really cool cameos coming in the future but that's all the time we have for tv review today i hope you all enjoyed i might start doing um a lot of these by myself now so i hope you liked that now on with the show Hello everyone, and welcome back to the episode. If you don't already know, we are in a series of theories now explaining gods in Disney lore. Okay, now in my first installment of this series, I covered how gods can die in Disney canon. What sparked the idea to explain gods in Disney lore in the first place is in my first episode, I claimed gods die in Disney canon. Um, What that statement was in reference to was Calypso, a sea goddess in the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise. As I have previously said, um, is one of the only Disney live-action franchises that I believe fits into the Disney-connected universe. The other involves a certain nanny that doesn't age with a talking umbrella, but that's another theory entirely. Calypso is a heathen goddess that once ruled over the ocean, second to only Poseidon himself. She is what I will refer to going forward as a rogue god, meaning a god separate from the Olympian pantheon. Though even in saying this, she is not only a goddess in Disney lore, but in Greek mythology. In Greek mythology and in Disney lore, she is the daughter of Atlas, a Titan. In Greek mythology, the Titans ruled over the Earth as its prime gods before the Olympian Pantheon. Same goes for Disney canon. The only difference here is that the Titans in Disney lore are not humanoid gods, as they are in Greek mythology, but giant beasts. And among them, there doesn't seem to be an Atlas. The reason for this is that Atlas, in Greek myth, is the god responsible for holding the heavens and the earth in place, meaning he would not be on land wreaking havoc as the other Titans were. This also gives us means to believe he was possibly a more developed specimen than the other Titans. So Calypso is the daughter of one of the oldest living and arguably most powerful gods in Disney canon, not to mention related to the Titans one of the very few beings that have the ability to kill a god with simply brute force. Along with this, she is not a member of the Olympian pantheon, therefore she does not fit under their rules. In my last theory, I explained how a god can become mortal or die. As we see in Pirates of the Caribbean, Calypso remains mortal even though she is bound in human form, but here is the caveat, because here we run into the Hades problem again. In Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Davy Jones explains, there is only one price I will accept, Calypso, Murder. Meaning Calypso can die. How? Well, looking at the list for ways gods can die in Disney canon, there's only two ways that could apply to Calypso. One, brute force, and two, physical potion or spell. Both of these are possible, but I see the second being more likely being that it didn't seem incredibly difficult for the Brethren Court to bind her with the correct tools. In fact, I think this is the event that frightened her enough that she would think of passing on her power. Did Calypso ever actually die? It's hard to say. After World's End, we never see or hear from her again, but I still think it's possible she could pass, and she knew that. In my opinion, my theory about Princess and the Frogs, Dr. Facilier, still holds strong. If you don't know what I'm talking about, but are interested, you can check out my theory on this topic in Infinity and Beyond's very first episode. Now, there's a couple more Rogue Gods separate from Calypso, but the most relevant out of these I will discuss in more detail than the others. These three in my opinion are the Elemental Spirits of Frozen, Te Fiti, The Ocean Itself from Moana, and Chernabog. These are simply the most relevant today out of the Disney Rogue Gods, though there are more. First, let's talk about arguably the most iconic and infamous out of these rogue gods, which is Chernobog. Chernobog features first in the Fantasia segment Night on Bald Mountain, where he is depicted as a giant demonic beast with horns and bat wings emerging from a mountain, calling deceased spirits to worship him on Walpurgis Night, which is the Slavic equivalent of Western Halloween. Though in Slavic myth, Chernobog is the god of the night. The film and Walt Disney describe Chernabog as Satan himself, so we can come to the conclusion Chernabog is Disney lore's Satan. Regardless of his title, he is revered as the most pure evil, terrifying, heinous villain Disney has ever created to this day. The way this character fits into the big picture of the Disney Connected Universe is not as obvious as some other characters, yet I think he does and those connections will come in later theories. Assuming automatically he does fit into this Connected Universe, I believe his dynamic with the likes of Hades is the same of that of Poseidon and Calypso, just opposite, with Chernobog as the prime ruler of the dead and Hades simply running operations in the underworld under Zeus's orders. Notice I said he runs operations in the underworld under Zeus's orders. I don't think Hades is even a god. I alluded to this in my last theory as well, but as I said then, I will explain that another time. So that's all the time we have for theories today, but I will finish speaking on Rogue Gods next time, so stay tuned. Now, on to the end of the episode! Well that's gonna do it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed, and don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and subscribe if you haven't already. Once again, thank you for listening. Have a magical day and a great big beautiful tomorrow to infinity and beyond.